Good morning. I invite you to turn with me to Zechariah. We're going to cover two chapters today, as best we can at least. Uh, We won't read every verse in those two chapters, but we plan to cover the meaning of it and the portions of the text that we'll cover are also included in your bulletin. As you turn there, I want to remind you of something that we've discussed as we've been in this book before, as we've talked about it, as apocalyptic literature. That's a, it's a big word, and, and the concept behind it is even bigger, and we struggle with how to understand apocalyptic literature. It's, it's, a, it's a non-linear, which is difficult for a very linear person like me. So as we read it, it, it seems to be sort of all over the place. The, the text is going to look to, to near-term fulfillment and to long-term fulfillment. It's going to see some earthly fulfillment before Christ. It's going to see uh, redemptively a partial fulfillment in Jesus' first coming and a, and a full fulfillment in His second coming. And all of these differing time frames are jumbled together as we might read it, which makes it hard for us to understand, but maybe these differing time frames and differing pictures of the person of God are meant to tell us something about His character, that our God is gracious and compassionate, and our God is mighty and fierce. Friends, we need to hear all. We need to hear the whole Christ. As we go to this text, let us see Him in the fullness of His beauty. Let me pray for us, asking for the Lord's blessing and for understanding. Would you bow with me? Lord, as we come to Your Word, would You give us the, the enlightening, convicting, comforting presence of Your Spirit we might know you more and we might receive this word as you have intended it as a word of encouragement pointing us to Christ. Do this, we pray in his name. Amen. Friends, I'd like to start by reading simply chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. And Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. And on Hamath also, which borders on it Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold... The Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. 
it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you may know uh, the name General Mad Dog Mattis. General Mattis was a former Marine general and Secretary of Defense, and he is eminently quotable. Some of those quotes can be read from this pulpit, and some of them maybe ought not be. But he has a way of capturing truths. And it was a time when General Mad Dog Mattis was addressing a group of Marines, encouraging them in their work. And And he encouraged them in this way, carry out your mission and keep your honor clean. Demonstrate to the world that there is no better friend and no worse enemy than a U.S. Marine. Mattis was talking to these Marines as they were about to go out and do their work and he was trying to build up something in them. It was a combination of compassion and ferocity. Now those two sound and maybe are uh, terms that contrast one another. But in the contrast, they don't have to contradict. Do you hear that? Compassion and ferocity do not have to contradict. Now, I'm not trying to equate Jesus to a Marine or the Marines to Jesus. But in this text, we see contrasting pictures of our God that do not contradict. But as Mattis would say to the Marines, and we must see when it comes to our God the outworking of these seemingly contrasting uh, positions has everything to do with the relationship one has with either the Marine or, much more importantly, with our God. For God's children, this word is meant to be one of great encouragement. For God's enemies... It is one of great warning. We see that in the first verse. The Lord in this word says, For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. It's it's as if the Lord is saying to His enemies, I'm watching you. I'm watching you. But to His children, I, I see you, my beloved. The same Lord is saying and offering a message to his enemies and to his children that are very complementary of one another. The Lord does not have a split personality. This text gives us a more full picture of who he is, magnifying his glory and his covenantal love for his own. 
this section of Scripture opens. And in the passage that I read, the oracle of the Word of the Lord, depending on the text that you're reading, and, and maybe even depending on the year of your ESV publication, it might say the burden of the Word. Burden is, is, a, is a technical term that refers to oracle or a, or a spoken prophecy. And this oracle or this burden is against the land of Hadrach. Now, Hadrach is, uh, you're not going to find it on a map. Either a present day map or an ancient map. But most scholars believe that Hadrach is, is, a, is a term referring to the land that is uh, encompassing the Medo-Persian Empire. Land that... Uh, it begins up north in Babylon, north of Jerusalem and Judah, and, and goes along the coastline through Palestine down entering into Egypt. The judgment that we read on this land found a near-term fulfillment merely 200 years after this oracle. The Lord uh, worked through Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great in the year 333 B.C. won a victory over the Persian army at Issus. And then made his way down the, the Mediterranean coastline through Palestine into northern Egypt following the exact same path outlined for us in Zechariah 9. And the Jewish historian Josephus even makes note of this campaign showing how Alexander cared for, befriended, and protected Jerusalem. It's a picture of near-term vengeance on God's enemies. But his vengeance, his judgment was to be doled out beyond the days of Alexander. This passage is talking about differing time frames, differing modes of judgment. And what we saw in those years after Zechariah were partial fulfillment at best. But there is a final Fulfillment, a final judgment that is yet to come. But at the, at the end of this text, we, we see this word of encouragement as the Lord says, For now I see with my own eyes. The Lord is reminding His people, I see. I have acted. And I will act. It's this promise of judgment on the enemies of God, the enemies of God who have oppressed His own people. But sadly, the oppression that came upon the people of God did not merely come from outside enemies. It also came from those shepherds who were to have cared for the people but had neglected them. There's more to come on this next week because our passage next week in Zechariah chapter 11 will be focused on God's judgment on the shepherds who have neglected, but we need to see it 
in this text. I'll, I'll pick back up briefly in Zechariah 10, verses 2 and 3. Therefore the people wander like sheep, and they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for His flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like His majestic steed in battle. For now, hear this. The Lord sees, as He has told us, and He sees with a discerning eye. He looks upon the shepherds, and promises judgment on those shepherds who have neglected His people. It is a reminder of God's covenantal protecting love that extends even over the false shepherds. A judgment that will even be doled out over the false shepherds. Again, more to come on that. But this this passage that speaks of judgment that will come at the hand of God, the judgment on the nations that earlier in Zechariah we were told they, they were at rest while God's people struggled, either passively neglecting to help the people of God or very actively warring against them. This passage that speaks of God's judgment upon them also speaks to God's promise of redemption, a promise that will come at the hands of the Good Shepherd. Let's look back to Zechariah chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant, With you I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. The same God who promises swift, fierce judgment on His enemies is the God who promises that He will fight for His own. Brothers and sisters, you and I need to hear both of those messages together. But the question before us is, what will this fighting look like? Well, it depends on where we find ourselves on the continuum of redemptive history. We are in the now. The now, as you've heard us talk about it, as we've been throughout Zechariah, is the time period between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. And so now, we have a certain perspective on the person of Jesus. We, through His Word, can can look back on His ministry of reconciliation, a ministry where He did battle against sin and death by going to the cross Himself, 
Reconciling God's chosen people to Himself. That is the perspective that we see now. The outworking of this promise of redemption. And in this fight, in our perspective on the fight that we read in Scripture, now we find an emphasis on Jesus' grace and on His compassion. When I read verse 9, did it sound familiar to you? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. If you have been around the church at all, these words might sound familiar to you and you might recall that we read them oftentimes on Palm Sunday. Seven days prior to Jesus' resurrection. Palm Sunday was the day that King Jesus entered into His capital city. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus didn't ride in as as a conquering warrior mounted on a stallion. No, on that day when King Jesus entered into His city, He he came humble, mounted on a donkey. It's a reminder to us on Palm Sunday and on today that Jesus came at His first coming as a different kind of king. He came as a humble Savior. The Lion of Judah came as a lamb. Now, I've said it, I'll say it again, I hope you hear it throughout this text. Contrasts do not contradict. The same King, King Jesus, who will one day bring judgment. The fierce, swift judgment of God. This same King, the Lion, is the one who came as the Lamb. And the two aspects of His character are complementary. They're complementary, speaking to His character, and we see them complementing within the contrast of the timeline. So, when we read on Palm Sunday... This passage cited in the Gospel accounts, either in Matthew or in John, both Matthew and John stop with verse 9. They stop with verse 9 because verse 9 emphasizes this this humble king who will earn redemption for us through his sacrifice. Now, we'll get to verse 10 in a minute. Because verse 10 also speaks to the character of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. But for now, for a moment, let's let's skip over. Remember I told you this is all jumbled together. (laughs) Let's skip over 10 and go to verse 11. Verse 11, the Lord continues to offer these comforting words of promise, the promise of redemption to His people, saying, as for you also... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. You, you, the covenant people of God. But then he speaks of the blood of his covenant. 
Covenant were agreements entered into most, uh, most often between a stronger party and a weaker party. But you see, when these parties entered into this covenant agreement, they didn't print out a legal document like we would and sign at the bottom. They, they had a different form of ceremony to initiate this covenant. The stronger party would take animals and cut them in half. It sounds brutal. But there was a point. The point also was brutal. The animal cut in two would be separated. And the stronger party would have the weaker party walk through the halves of the animal. As if to say, if you break this covenant, the curse that was enacted upon this animal will be brought upon you. If you break my covenant agreement, I will shed your blood as this animal's blood has been shed. Always. It was the weaker party who walked between the animals. But when God entered into a covenant with Abraham, and with Abraham's spiritual offspring after him, he also enacted this brutal, bloody covenant ceremony to initiate the covenant, but he did something shocking. You see, Abraham was the weaker party, but Abraham did not pass through the animals. The Lord Himself passed through the animals. Saying for Abraham and for all to hear and to see, if you break this covenant, I will take the curse of the punishment upon Myself. If you, Abraham, break the promise of obedience to this covenant, I will take that punishment. I will be cursed. Friends, when Jesus went to the cross, the lion became the lamb. When Jesus went to the cross, He made good on this promise by taking the covenant curse on Himself for Abraham and all of Abraham's spiritual offspring, so that through this reality, the prisoner might be set free. The waterless pit, the waterless pit was a place of doom. There was no escape from a waterless pit. And for the prisoner to be set free from the waterless pit, that prisoner is plucked from death. Jesus plucked His people from death by becoming the sacrifice for us. We didn't read it, but in chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, it says that He shall pass through the sea of troubles. The He in chapter 10 is Jesus. And if, and if all of this is not powerful enough for us to see the grace the grace and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, go back to chapter 9, verse 7, where He says, I will take away its blood from its mouth. Speaking of the people of Philistia who had committed the worst of atrocities. It's abomination from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant of our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. The Lord is saying that even among my enemies... 
I will redeem. Even among those who have persecuted my people, even among those who have lived at enmity with the Lord, I will redeem by my grace alone. Friends, some of us sit here and we wonder about a God who would choose see the graciousness of this God. That He would love even His enemies. The chosen of God will come and worship around the throne from among every nation and tribe and tongue, including the enemies of Philistia. So, can I ask you this day, if you are here and and you have not taken hold of this promise of redemption, why not? What is getting in the way? You're taking hold of the redemption that is promised to us in Jesus Christ. Could it be concerns over intellectual integrity? We don't have time to to get into a long discussion of apologetics, but I would simply say this. Look to the integrity of the Scriptures. See the, the unity of the Word as throughout God's Word, written across the centuries, He would point so clearly to the person of Jesus. And find comfort and confidence in God's Word as it points to the one hope of redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. Could the thing that gets in the way of your taking hold of redemption in Jesus Christ be a misconception over the person of Jesus? Could you have bought into the secular lie of this arbitrary, judging God? If that is you, if this misconception of the person of Jesus is getting in the way of taking hold of Him, see the gracious and compassionate heart of our Savior This is outlined for us here in Scripture. Maybe what is getting in the way of you taking hold of the redemption that is offered to us in Jesus Christ is you've not known how. And if that is you, please know that Jesus does not outline for us some religious ritual, some incantation that that must be spoken or acted out so that we can have a place with God. No. In His Word, He simply tells us in John 1.12, to all who have received Him, to all who have believed in His name, He has given the right to become children of God. If you have held off taking hold of this redemption in Jesus Christ because you have not known how, He tells us in His Word, simply call upon His name. It's a sign of the new life that you have already been given in Him. You will be saved. For others, maybe for others here today, what has kept you away from taking hold of redemption in Jesus Christ is a hardened resistance. And if that is you, then please hear the rest of the story. Because the promise of redemption will come to a full, climactic conclusion. 
at the second coming when the Lion of Judah comes to secure the picture of redemption that we see here in the text. I'll pick back up with chapter 9, verse 13, and read all the way through 10, chapter 2. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. For how great is His goodness and how great His beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds and He will give them showers of rain. To everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Do you remember how we said that Matthew and John, when they looked to Jesus' entry into the city, they stopped with verse 9. But in verse 10, we see that when Jesus entered, He won salvation... It is first coming. He won the battle over sin and death. But there is more to come. There is more to come in this timeline of redemption. And if you are in Christ, you know this. You live it day by day. If we're honest, we we get confused with this Victory that we speak of, that Jesus has won. Because on the day-to-day basis, we know that the battle is still raging. We, we struggle with our own sin. We struggle with the impact of the fall in all of creation. We know it so clearly in this year of all years. Where I look out and we're wearing masks for protection. It is a constant reminder of the fall. And so how can we speak of this victory that Jesus has won? Well, we know it in the time frame of redemption. He won the battle over sin and death. But one day, Jesus will come not to sacrifice, but to conquer. And that's where verse 10 picks up. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. God will win the victory. And this battle that rages will cease. And in this text, he tells us that God's people will have a role to play both in the battle And in the jubilant, even raucous celebration that will take place afterwards. Did you hear this description? They shall drink wine, and they they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like bowls drenched like the corners of the altar. 
There's a picture of this celebration, a picture of restoration that is this joy-filled flourishing where the people of God in glory will rest securely and peacefully under His care as the prized possessions of God. Jewels in His crown shining in the land. The description of the prosperity that will exist in that day is equated to abundant grain and new wine. Friends, when we first read this text, when we just come and read chapters 9 and 10 of Zechariah, it can seem confusing and complicated. The varying time frames, the promise of redemption, the themes are bundled all together. There's burden and blessing. There's judgment and promise. There's near-term and long-term. There's mention of ancient and confusing cities. And when we read it, we ask ourselves, what are we to do with all of this? This very complicated passage boils down to a very simple message. Our Lord, our God... He's gracious and compassionate. And our Lord and our God, He's also mighty and fierce. And He offers these words to encourage us, His children, and to give us hope. It really is that simple. Far too often we we overcomplicate the message trying to craft for ourselves practical to-do list that will help us in our daily tasks, make us better in our relationships. But friends, the Word of God is about God. It is about His character. It is about the hope that we have in Him. And so let us not overcomplicate this text. Let us rest in its simple encouragement. Let us resist the temptation to to make a to-do list. But having said all that, I will offer two quick points of application from this text. And the first is simply this. Receive it. Receive this word. Is there anyone in this room who has ever in their life once gotten past the need for encouragement? That's a rhetorical question because I know the answer. Not one of us has gotten past the need for encouragement. Every one of us on a daily basis need encouraging words to help us get through the day. God offers it to us and He offers it repeatedly throughout His Word. It is His Word of love and encouragement from a God who is strong and mighty. Receive this message of hope because it speaks to the character of God And tells us, reminds us that the Lord fights for His own. That is first. Receive it. But secondly, live it. Live this Word. Let me tell you what I mean. Embedded in this picture of restoration. A restoration that will ultimately be found in the new heavens and new earth. Embedded in that message, there is a command. Did you hear it? In chapter 10, verse 1. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. 
Ask rain. In the new heavens and the new earth, the Lord is setting up a new world order. (laughs) And in this new world order, we will no longer be blinded by our own sin. We will no longer be blinded by our inability to see God. He will be ever-present with us, just as He is now by His Spirit, but we will be able to behold Lord Jesus Christ with our own eyes. And we will ask. And we will receive. It is a picture of intimacy and dependency that we will experience in glory. Can you imagine in glory where we will not just be singing around in the clouds with wings and harps. We will be working. We will be creating. But can you imagine in that day saying, Father, can I have a little rain over here for my garden? And this, this beautiful response, absolutely, my child. That is the picture that the Lord is giving us here in this text. But if that is the hope that is to be ours in the new heavens and new earth, He gives us this picture now so that we can bring that into the now. So that we can live in the encouragement now through asking, trusting prayer. Richie Sessions is uh, an RUF pastor at Vanderbilt University and. I may have shared this with you before, but I share it again now. He offers the most beautiful, simple picture of prayer that is rooted in covenantal intimacy. Richie talks about the time when, when his now teenage son was a toddler, and, and Richie would come down in the morning to the kitchen, and, and his toddler son would be sitting in the high chair, with this goofy little grin that only comes on the face of a child who knows that he is the object of his father's delight. And Richie would come in to the kitchen and and his son who knew he was delighted in, knew he was safe, knew he was cared for, would simply say, Hi, Daddy. Can I have some cereal? And Richie says, That's it. That's it. That is the picture of prayer. His son was not afraid to approach his father. He wasn't hesitant in asking. He didn't question his father's desire to care for him or his ability. He simply, sweetly trusted and asked. Richie's son didn't look up at the TV screen on the wall and ask the TV to give him a bowl of cereal, because no household God can provide in this way. That would be foolish, and even a toddler knew that. Yet how soon do we forget? Friends, I've wrestled with this question myself over the course of this week. How soon do we forget that our God is able? How soon do we forget that our God delights in our dependence. How soon do we forget to pray? Richie's son knew that he was hungry. And he knew who to ask. Because he knew that that person, his father loved him. And he knew that his person, his father was capable of providing. Isn't it the picture of asking prayer offered in the context of a committed, covenantal relationship. I understand 
that it might seem odd to conclude a sermon based on a text that is so ripe with battle imagery with a picture of a toddler asking his father for cereal. But as best I can tell, that's the whole point of the text. Friends, our God is mighty and fierce, which means He is able. And our God is gracious and compassionate, which means He is willing. And our God gives these words to warn His enemies, but to encourage His beloved children. And so when we respond to these words through dependent, intimate prayer, our God is glorified. And we are blessed. Let it be. Father, You are a mighty God. You are a gracious God and You are our Father. You have made good on Your promises of redemption in the person of Jesus Christ and we praise You for it and ask that You would give us hearts to find comfort, contentment, and dependence in You. Do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.